if you would turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, then we're going to jump to the New Testament for a week, take a quick break from Deuteronomy, and uh, but we'll come back and we'll finish the book. But we're going to go to Luke chapter 24. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, if you get to John or Acts, you've gone a little bit too far and go back to the left. This is right near the end of the Gospel of Luke. I'm going to read the first 12 verses this morning. So please listen carefully, uh, as always, as this is God's Word. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home, marveling at what had happened. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us to this amazing gospel to learn more about your son, Jesus. We know that everything about Christianity depends on the truth of the resurrection. And yet we are people filled with doubts and are often skeptical. Make us people who marvel at your truth. Make us people who respond with wonder at the resurrection of your son. We ask you this Easter morning to give us the grace to understand who Jesus is and what Jesus has done on this resurrection day. So by your spirit, open this gospel to us and help us to see Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, if you've ever followed any of the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, or if you were here for the sermon series on Luke in 2002 and 3, or the Gospel of John in 2007 and 8, or the Gospel of Matthew in 2013 and 14, or the Gospel of Mark in 2019 and 2020, then you know that Easter is the climax of the Gospel story. In any careful reading of Jesus' life, you see repeated episodes of dramatic healing powerful teaching, amazing miracles, harsh rebukes, terrible prophecies, and true shock and awe in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The crucifixion of Christ was unthinkable to the disciples. Jesus' followers believed he was the Messiah, that he would overthrow Rome and usher in God's kingdom, but now Christ was dead. And the crucifixion, when it happened, even though he predicted it, 
None of his followers said everything is going according to plan. You don't have to worry. All four of the Gospels give us very unflattering portraits of what happened when he died. His disciples were disheartened, dismayed, disappointed, disillusioned, and dispirited. Those are all the words I could think of to begin with this. They were filled with doubt. The unthinkable had happened. And all of his followers could see was darkness and gloom. Not one of Jesus' followers had the slightest glimmer of hope. God himself bore testimony to Jesus' death, as Matthew 27 tells us. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. And Joseph of Arimathea played out the last act in Luke 23, as Frank brought to us on Good Friday evening. This man Joseph went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. You have to understand the scene. As far as the disciples were concerned, it was over. They had come up against a blank wall. They had not believed that it could end like this. They hadn't grasped the truth of Jesus' prophecies of resurrection. There was nothing left except this recurring sense of utter helplessness and the shame of their denials and desertions. The disciples didn't know they were about to experience a greater joy than they had ever known. And Luke 24 is the story of discovering that joy. In this passage, we see how the truth of the resurrection brings both doubt and wonder to the followers of Christ including us, for their experience is our experience. Let's look again at the last few verses of our text for today, starting at verse 10. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. The passage ends with Peter marveling at what had happened. Some versions say wondering at what had happened. It's an unexplainable phenomenon. I mean, how do you explain it? The angels told the women that Jesus has risen from the dead just as he had told them. So the women went back to tell the men. The men are all hiding behind closed doors, fearful. And these words seem to the men to be an idle tale. One version translates that as the story sounded like nonsense. They simply didn't believe the women. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb. He stooped, looked in, saw the linen grave clothes by themselves. And then he went home marveling at what had happened. So what we have here is doubt and disbelief on one hand and marvel and wonder on the other. We are here because of an unexplainable phenomenon. 
But there is one fact on which everyone agrees, followers and skeptics alike agree that Jesus' body disappeared, but what's the explanation? There are two different perspectives, doubt and wonder. Now, how many of you have watched what is now an old show called The X-Files? Anybody remember that show? A number of you do. Well, there's an old version of the show and a new version of the show. Not much difference. It's about two FBI agents, Scully and Mulder, and they're assigned to what the FBI calls the X-Files, unsolvable, unexplainable cases. Now, I'm no expert on the show, but it fell into fairly predictable patterns. Both agents look at the same evidence, and they always respond in different ways. Scully also always responds from the doubt side. She's skeptical and constantly thinking there has to be some logical explanation. After all, if you can't explain it with your mind or measure it with your senses, then it can't be real. Mulder, on the other hand, always responds from the wonder side. He's open to unlimited possibilities, always open to the unexplainable. He understands we can't explain everything with our limited experiences and understanding. And the reality is both sides, doubt and wonder, are in each and every one of us. Everyone experiences both doubt and wonder, and we choose to act, consciously or unconsciously, from one or the other. If you're primarily acting out of your doubt side, then you try to understand God through reason or your senses. But if you act out of the wonder side, you're always left looking for more. And in the beginning of Luke 24, we see both sides. So let's start with that group of doubting disciples, verses 1 through 3, doubting disciples. Actually, we're going to start with the Galilean women, because we can't let our knowledge of the discovery that awaits them dull us to the dark sackcloth that's covering these women's souls. They are depressed, they're exhausted, they're in mourning. They have no hope whatsoever. And according to Mark 16, they're fretting over uh, how they would get into the tomb. There it says, they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? They don't expect anything except more sorrow. If you take flowers to the cemetery, do you expect to see an empty grave? And if you do see one, would it occur to you the deceased has risen from the dead? Of course not. And neither did they. And so our verses say, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now they're confused and perplexed. The Apostle John tells us that Joseph of Arimathea, a secret disciple of Jesus, had gotten permission to bury Jesus' body. And with the aid of Nicodemus, he had wrapped Jesus' body in linen and about 100 pounds of spices and laid him in a new garden tomb. And the Lord Jesus lay in that tomb until the resurrection, which took place sometime before dawn on Sunday morning. And shortly after he was resurrected, certain women came to the tomb to anoint his body with spices, mentioned in all four Gospels. At least four women were there, probably more. Matthew mentions Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Jesus. Mark tells us uh, Salome was present. Luke includes Joanna. 
And these devoted women evidently reached the tomb at daybreak, a time when it's difficult to see clearly. But what they can see shook them. The stone has been removed from the entrance. Had someone broken in? Had Joseph of Arimathea decided on another tomb? Where were the soldiers? Finally, the women decide to inform the disciples. And so Mary Magdalene leaves with the message. John picks up the thread of the narrative in John chapter 20. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So they apparently assumed Jesus' body had been stolen. At least that's what Mary Magdalene thought. And they said to her, why, uh, John 20, verse 13, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. The empty tomb intensifies their distress. So the women come to all the disciples with this story. What's their response? It doesn't make sense. People don't get up and walk out of tombs. When we use the expression, it doesn't make sense, we're saying it doesn't compute according to my five senses. It's where the word sense comes from. If you can't smell it, see it, taste it, touch it, or hear it, it can't be real. Now, for some of us, we have to think way back, but if you, some of you, this is where you're at right now. Your children are coming and asking you to help with their homework, especially math. I don't like math. I mean, they were, by the time they were in fifth and sixth grade, I couldn't keep up anymore. Definitely by middle school, I was out of the picture. Now, if I can't understand middle school math, how am I going to understand God? And Jesus said, you must become like little children. There's some days I excel at that. Children are born with wonder, aren't they? When a child is born, faith is the easiest thing in the world for them. They live out of faith. Unlimited possibilities. You ask a little kid what they want to be when they grow up. It's amazing the responses you get. There's no limitations. But the older we get, the more narrow and limited we become in our faith. What happened? We become narrow and limited in our perspective because of what we've been told. If you're told the world is flat, you start acting like the world is flat. You begin to limit, live in a very limited and narrow world. Nobody ventures too far from home. You might sail off the end of the planet. It affects everything until someone comes along who shatters that paradigm. We've only understood the earth is not flat for about 500 years. People said no one would ever be able to fly, and then someone invented airplanes, and that paradigm was shattered. Easter is about a shattered paradigm. 
Peter looked at these empty linen cloths and went, if God can do that, then that changes everything. If God can do that, then anything is possible. Easter is about the power of faith. It's about not defining God by what we can explain. It's living from the unexplainable. Can't explain a miracle. That's why we call them miracles. That's the point. I don't understand middle school math. How am I going to explain a miracle? But if God can do what God did on Easter, then God can do anything. Nothing is impossible with God, even if I or you don't understand it. The text says the women got perplexing news, unexplainable news, verses 4 through 8. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, these two dazzling men are angels. And they cast an entirely new light on the matter. They radiate the splendor of God. Same words are used to describe the shining garments on the Mount of Transfiguration in Luke 9. And the women are overcome with fear. It says they bow down until their faces are on the ground, probably as a sign of res respect, but also perhaps they're just avoiding the bright lights. And while they're face down, one of the angels voices that immortal rebuke, verse 5, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? Not only does doubt cause us to miss opportunities, but it causes us to look for the living among the dead. On that first Easter morning, the women went to the tomb and they met angels there. And the angels posed that question, why do you seek the living among the dead? There's nothing living in cemeteries. Living people are not in cemeteries. And you know what happens when we fail to recognize who's with us? We look for life in non-life places. Hear me out. We think we'll find life in our achievements. Surely I'll find life in this job and pour myself into it. But here's what happens. We miss life because we live out of great ambition rather than even a small faith. And we miss life because we give life to ambition rather than God. Why do we seek the living among the dead? Or we think we can find life in relationships. Surely I can find life in this person. Well, I've known all kinds of people who really have their act together, people of integrity, and then they meet someone. I don't know what happens to our brains when we meet someone. Some of you come to me and say, but Dr. Dave, you don't understand. Nobody has made me feel this way before. So you hook up with this person and suddenly say, oh, you don't make me feel that way anymore. So we begin to look for another relationship that can give us life. People, there is no person in the world that can give you life apart from Jesus Christ. We look to people to do for us what only God can do. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Or some of us think we can find life in the next purchase. How many times have you gone out and bought something just because you were depressed? It gets bad sometimes that we think we'll find life in the next house or the next car or perhaps the next book, but probably not. <laughs> it gets bad sometimes and we think we'll find life in a thing. I do that too, and it's dumb. And we don't find life there, do we? All we do is get the dead up to our ears. They call it retail therapy. Why do we seek the living among the dead? 
we're all desperate for life. We grasp for models of living and turn to videos or websites, whatever the latest thing is, and rather than connect with the source for living. The men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? The women were accused of coming to anoint a lifeless Jesus when they should have known he would rise from the dead. It is scandalous to look for Jesus in the grave. Now, if you're looking for Elvis, the proper place is in Memphis, an Doric-style mausoleum with ornate brass and bronze fittings on marble in his own vault in a massive seamless copper casket among the dead. But if you look for Jesus in that place, you've got it all wrong. All resurrection-denying churches look for Jesus among the dead. They love the example of the dead Jesus. They preach his courage, his conviction, even his faith. Sentimentality fills their sermons with language about a recurrent spring making hope eternal and butterflies discarding their cocoons. But the word resurrection is never used except maybe metaphorically. And the angels rebuke, set the stage for their proclamation of the Easter message with the astounding truth ring over these now uplifted faces. The angel tells them, verses 6 through 8, He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day, rise. And they remembered his words. The angel challenged them to remember the prophecies of death and resurrection that Jesus himself had made back in Galilee. Those prophecies are explicit. Right after Peter's great confession of the Christ, Jesus said, Luke 9, 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Immediately after the transfiguration, he said, Mark chapter 9, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask. The women remembered Jesus' words. But Jesus had often spoken metaphorically and they probably relegated his words to some such hard-to-understand interpretation. But now the light comes on. And so they become messengers of what they've seen and heard. And the great truth for us here is the significance of the resurrection is inseparable from Jesus' prophetic word about his death and resurrection. It is the word of God that makes sense of everything. The very structure of the end of Luke makes this clear. Luke 24 recounts three episodes. First, the women's encounter uh, with the angels at the empty tomb, our passage today. But next will become an encounter on the road to Emmaus, Luke 24, 13 to 35. And then third, Jesus' appearance to the disciples in Jerusalem, verses 36 to 39. Significantly, all three episodes are structured the same way. Doubt, rebuke, instruction, and wonder. And the instruction in all three episodes consists of a call to remember God's word. Here the women are told, verse 6, Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee 
The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. On the Emmaus road, Jesus admonished the disciples. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then in Jerusalem, meeting with all of the disciples, he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. The prophetic word from Jesus is central to the gospel. Jesus' atoning death is fully understood only in light of the whole teaching of the whole Word of God. His resurrection is fully understood when it's joined with His Word. In fact, those who rejected His prophetic Word initially rejected the resurrection. Just as Jesus had said in Luke 16, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This means we're to be people of the whole book. We're to devour the Word of God. Our hearts and minds begin to embrace Christ only through the light of the Scriptures, all the Scriptures. And when you're able to remember how He told you, then you can't wait to get back to wherever you came from, back to work, back to school, back to home, and start sharing the wonder. Sharing the wonder, verses 9 through 12. These women had been perplexed confused, rebuked, and instructed. But now they share what they've seen. It's impossible to know how much they really understood at this point, but they shared what they had seen and heard, verses 9 and 10. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. So these women some of whom have been with Jesus a long time. They're trusted followers of Christ. They rush back from the tomb. And they're telling the disciples what happened over and over and over again. However, the wise and lordly males were not impressed. Verse 11. You get to all these scenes, these great dramatic scenes. And the women always look good. The men, not so much. Verse 11, these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. They regarded the women's witness as essentially female hysteria, nonsense and babbling, foolish, we might say. And maybe we would have done the same thing, or worse, given our own sin and stupidity. Nevertheless, these are the apostles, the men over whom Jesus had prayed for an entire night before calling them. Their faith is going to be the foundation of the church, Jesus had directly taught them numerous times about his death and resurrection, but now they dismissed the women sharing about an empty tomb as nonsense. Like so many of us, they heard and didn't hear God's word. They never bothered to think that Jesus meant exactly what he said. We need to remember, 98% of the Bible is easy to understand. It's intelligible. There's a little bit that's hard. You know, as Mark Twain once said, it's not what I don't understand about the Bible that bothers me, it's what I do understand. 
And the apostles failed to put in practice what they did understand. And Jesus had earlier prayed for them, John 17, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. Our growth to spiritual maturity begins by following the word. And while the disciples were dismissing uh, the ranting of Mary Magdalene as idle talk and nonsense, it's very significant that in John chapter 20, Christ first appears to this woman, Mary Magdalene, not to an apostle, not to the great in society, not to the great in the church, but to this one particular woman. Christ appears first to the one who in the culture of that time was oppressed, a woman who had known great sin, and what great comfort it should be to us that Christ first comes to the poor in spirit. As Matthew 5 says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That truth never changes. And how did Mary feel at that moment? She's been on this emotional roller coaster and now she's deliriously at the top. Often she went on this sort of cross-country run to the disciples. And it must have been incredibly satisfying to come say, Peter, John, men, I have something to say. I've seen Jesus. What a day. Multiple trips to the tomb, multiple retellings, sharing the wonder of the risen Savior again and again, even when doubted. And now it's to Peter's credit that despite all the doubt, he checks things out for himself, verse 12. Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. If God can do this, anything is possible. So what do you do? Act out of wonder? I don't know what all of you are living through. I know a lot of what you're living through. I probably know more than you think I do. But don't sit in your doubts. What did Peter do? Ten disciples just sat there and thought this was nonsense. And Peter had doubts too, but he didn't sit on his doubts. He got up and he ran to the tomb. And that's what you need to do. You need to run to the tomb. Act out of wonder. Act on the unexplainable and experience the miracle. God takes the impossible and makes it possible. And a lot of people think, I can't do that. Dave, I have all this doubt. I wish I could believe this, but I have more doubts than faith. Well, first of all, faith is not the absence of doubt. Everybody has doubts. I have doubt every day of my life. I got up this morning knowing I had to preach for Easter, and I thought, I can't do this anymore. Dealing with doubt. Personally, one of my favorite stories is Mark 9. When the man comes to Jesus about his uh, boy who's suffering from some kind of evil spirit, and he asks Jesus for help, and Jesus asks his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Do you hear that? All things are possible for one who believes. Jesus says, don't act out of your doubts. Act out of wonder. And I love what that man said because I can relate to that guy. It's one of my favorite passages. I believe, help my unbelief. Can you relate to that? Belief and unbelief are in all of us, but he chose to act on his belief. And Jesus healed his son. 
Peter's inspection led to wonder. It was the beginning of true faith. He saw the empty tomb, and even though he didn't entirely understand it, he starts to wonder about it. It says he marveled. That leads to a complete Easter faith. The word was yet to bloom, but it had taken root. And when it did bloom, Peter became a powerhouse. Listen to his explosive sermon at Pentecost, not that much later, Acts 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It's the difference between living in your doubts and living by faith, even a small faith, even a small faith that can't fully explain everything. So the question this Easter morning, as you look at this empty tomb, will you live out of doubt or wonder? See, it's not a matter of how much faith you have. Some of you are thinking your doubt is so much bigger than your faith. And Jesus said in Matthew 17, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. It doesn't matter if most of your life is doubt. Everyone has some faith, even if it's tiny. Your presence here this morning says that you believe the resurrection of Jesus Christ is at least a possibility. And if you take that little bit of faith you have and act on that small faith and not your doubt, anything is possible, nothing is impossible with God, nothing. And I don't know what you're dealing with. You might be thinking your marriage is dead. Your sense is safe, you look at it, if you smell it, you hear it, you taste it, it's dead. Your mind knows it, there's nothing left. But if you live out of your doubt or live out of the little bit of faith you have in the tomb being empty, then you can cry out to God for resurrection. As Christ was resurrected, your marriage can be resurrected. Your relationships can be resurrected. Your spiritual life can be resurrected. Your hope can be resurrected because resurrection means coming back from the dead. And a grand truth that emerges from this story is the disciples didn't invent the resurrection story. At first, they didn't understand it and they didn't believe it. So how did they resist creatively imagining such a spellbinding story for the church? They resisted because they're not myth makers. They're witnesses. They're simply sharing the wonder of what they've seen and heard. From John 20, we saw the Apostle John became the first to understand and believe the resurrection. He saw those grave wrappings lying there just as they'd been wrapped on Jesus. But there's an appropriate space in between. There's no Jesus, no body. And it says John entered the tomb and he saw and he believed. Peter, don't you see it? No one has done anything with the body. It's gone right through the grave clothes. Jesus is risen. He is risen. He's alive. The only reason the stone was rolled back is so that we can see that Jesus is gone. Praise God. Let's go. Last one home, wash his feet. John understood what happened. He's alive. The great goal of our text that's before us is to wonder and believe as Peter and John believed. If we can act on our wonders, our lives can be changed. A living Christ is an all-powerful Christ. A living Christ is an ever-present Christ. A living Christ is a Christ who gives us life right now. 
A living Christ is the Christ who gives us life forever and eternity. A living Christ is the Christ who gives victory. The only reasonable explanation for the apostles' devotion, even at the cost of their own death, is they saw an empty tomb. They met their risen Lord. They came to believe the word of God. And the scripture says that when Jesus came back to life on Easter Sunday morning, he didn't show himself to just one or two people. He showed himself to his followers. He showed himself to people who are not his followers, skeptics and unbelievers and doubters. And he didn't show up just once. He showed up a number of times over several weeks. He had dinner with folks. He did Q&A sessions. He walked with people. Everyone who was an eyewitness to the resurrected Christ, they never forgot it. And they went out and spread the word. In fact, we read in Acts when the Roman officials said, you gotta stop talking about all this resurrection stuff. They said, we can't. We saw the resurrected Christ. Church history tells us that most of the disciples died for telling the story of the resurrection of Christ. People told them to stop and they wouldn't. They couldn't, and they lost their lives. They just couldn't lie about what happened. They were too full of wonder. In his very last sermon, the great Presbyterian preacher, James Montgomery Boyce said, Easter proves that Jesus is God, that he is the savior, that death is not the end for anyone, that there is a resurrection. Thus, Jesus' resurrection proves everything that is essential to Christianity. As 1 Corinthians 15 says, I passed on to you what was most important and what also had been passed on to me, that Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said, he was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, as the scripture said. And all who believe it said, amen. Amen. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And that makes everything true. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us Easter. We pray for those here this morning that struggle with their doubts. Help them respond to you and your word in faith, no matter how small. And this day, more than any other day, help us to know and believe the remarkable truth that was revealed to us at the empty tomb. Lord, thank you that Christ was raised from the dead on the third day, as the scripture said, proving that all his claims are true. Drive these truths deep into our hearts and help us not to respond in doubt, but in wonder this Easter. In the name of your Son, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.